Well, take your Bible and look over to 1 John chapter 4. We'll finish that chapter today and turn the corner and be in chapter 5. And I've titled the message this morning, The Confidence of Love. The Confidence of Love. It's really an amazing passage. In fact, as you're turning there in your Bible to 1 John chapter 4, verses 17 through 21, this is our practice to what we say exposit the Scripture, and we just go through it week by week, and we find ourselves in this little paragraph at the end of 1 John, uh, and it's in verse 17. Let me read the text. You follow with me. 417, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says... I love God and hates his brother. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. There is the text. And as we've walked through this in the last few weeks together from chapter 4, verse 7, all the way down through the end here in verse 21, our theme has been the love, loving one another. In fact, look back at chapter 4, verse 7. He says there, and we're commanded to love one another. There in 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another. In fact, that's the banner over which this whole section rests. If you look down in your Bible at 1 John chapter 4, 11, it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, here's the command, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12 says that no one has ever seen God, and then a command, if we love one another... And then if you go all the way down to verse 21 that we just read, this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I mean, we are commanded to love one another. And when you think about the scriptures, we really have no excuse uh, for not loving one another. There's a number of reasons for that without throughout all of the scripture. It says in Romans 5, 5, it says, because... The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In fact, we do not even have to be humanly taught to love because we ourselves, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.9, are taught by God to love one another. We are exhorted in the book of Colossians in 3.14 to put on love. In 1 Thessalonians 3.12, it tells us there to increase and abound in love for one another. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 8.8 to be sincere in love. Philippians 2.2 says that we are to be united in love. 1 Peter 4.8 says that we are to be fervent in love. And in Hebrews 10.24, it says that we are to stimulate one another to love. And so you have all these exhortations bound up in the Scripture where we are called to love one another. 
Now, what John is doing in this text is explaining to us why believers do love each other sacrificially. He's, not, he's exhorting us to, to love each other, but he's explaining why we actually do love one another. And what he does in the text is give us these five definitive reasons why believers do love one another, okay? And we've seen the first three. We said believers do love one another, number one, because God's nature is love. God's nature is love. And we begin there at verse 7. He says, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. The reason that we do love one another is because God is love. And by being united to him and bound together with him and in relationship with him, we actually do love one another. But we do love because of God's nature of love. But secondly, we love because of God's gift of love. Not only is love bound up in the being of God, but in verses 10 and 11, God gave the greatest gift of love in his son. And we noted there that his son came, he was made manifest, as it says there in verse 9, at his incarnation. And then it says that he sent his only son into the world uh, so that we might live through him, speaking of his death and of the atonement. And so we can love, why? Because God gave us his son, he came to earth, and not only did he, was he made manifest, but he died in our place, and because of that gift... Look at verse 11. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so he's putting his argument together. You, at Grace Church of the Valley, if you're a believer in Christ, are commanded to love one another. You say, well, how can I do that? Well, here's the reason why. Because of God's nature of love. Secondly, because of God's gift of love. And then thirdly, the third reason why we can love one another is because of God's indwelling spirit that abides in us. In fact, look at the text, just to touch on it. Uh, Verse 13, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. And it says, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And so we can love one another. Again, the reason why is because God's indwelling spirit abides in you. And because it abides in you, then you are going to love one another. That's really what John's argument is as we walk through this text. And so God and his Holy Spirit indwell and abide in you. And because of that, and I pick up the text where we left off last week, is we can love one another because of the confidence of perfected love. Because of the confidence of perfected love. Here is the fourth reason. Let's pick up the text. Very interesting passage of scripture. Let's look to the text. Look at verse 17 in your Bible. It says there that by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence 
in the day of judgment. Now, just stop there for a second. Of course, when you're expositing the scripture, words matter. And the first words that, you know, just kind of strike you as you begin the text at verse 17 is look at again, the first two words, at least in the ESV, is by this. And there's questions then amongst the commentators and just the word of God is, what does the by this refer to? And you could have a couple of different ways that you refer to the by, by this. You could say the by this, it looks backwards, if you will, that our love, verse 17, is perfected with us. Why? Looking back, because we abide with God. Some choose to look at verse 17 and say the by this looks forward. So by this, verse 17, <clears throat> love is perfected with us so that we have confidence for the day of judgment. And so they're saying that it's an indicator of God's perfect love is that we have confidence. I really believe what John is doing here is he's looking back just to the previous section. He's looking back to what he just said to us in verse 16. Just go back there for a moment. We have come to know, verse 16, and to believe the love of that God has for us. God is love. And here's the key phrase. Whoever, at Grace Church of the Valley, a believer, whoever abides in love, remains in love, dwells in love, the thought is abides in God, and God abides in him. He's speaking there about the nature of that mutual indwelling of the Spirit of God. That because God is love and we abide in Him and He abides in us is the thought. Is that this love, by this, now look at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us. In fact, this is very consistent. He's, he's just saying here God abides in us. We abide in God. God is love. We demonstrate that love. And by your understanding of the love of God, by this, the love of God is perfected in us. Look back at chapter 4 in verse 12. It's very similar there. No one has ever seen God. But John says, if we love one another, practically, God abides in us and his love is is perfected in us. So as we love, it's demonstrating that he abides in us. And then it says that his love is actually perfected in us. So when you put that together, when we abide in him, and when he abides in us, and when we demonstrate that love towards one another, his love is being perfected in us. Now, here, he's talking about the nature of abiding. And by abiding in his love, it's perfected in us. Look back at chapter 2. Do you remember we saw that before, that ideal of something being perfected? In chapter 2, in verse 5, it's just a different analogy. Whoever keeps his word, in other words, obedience to his word, in him. In other words, not in the ones who claim to know, but whoever is obeying and keeping his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. In other words, God's love is demonstrated. It's revealed in the obedience of his word. And you want to make sure here, 
You don't obey his word, so it proves the love, so that it shows that you love God. Actually, what he's saying is, you love God, and because you love God and you keep his word, that love is seen to be demonstrated in your life as the fruit of what comes out. So there in 2.5, we obey him and his love is being perfected in us. Now in chapter 4, verse 17, as we abide in him, his love is being perfected in us. Now that phrase there, just to build this a little bit, you say, what does that mean by this? Verse 16, abide. What, are you, what does he mean there? His love is perfected in us. You remember back in chapter 2, that word, the idea for perfected, it means to complete is what the word means. It's the ideal of to finish. If something is perfected, it's completed, if you will. It's finished. In other words, it's reaching its desired goal. So listen, Grace Church of the Valley, listen. God's, you could say it this way, that God's love in his being, in his character, reaches its intended goal when that love is reproduced in us and then it's demonstrated to one another. Very interesting. And in other words, his love, and, and I don't mean this in an ultimate sense, but his love is perfected. Watch this. Not through our understanding of it, not even just through the experience of it, but through, John says here, our expression of it, that God's love reaches, if you will, its maturity in us when we have shared that love to another person. And so when we abide in God's love, you say, well, what happens? I mean, if, and, and again, this is just the mark or the fruit of assurance, right? You say, well, what will happen when you abide in God's love? His love abides in you. That love that abides in you is demonstrated to someone else. Look at the text. Here's what happens. By this, the love of God is perfected with us so that we may have, I love this phrase, confidence, it says, for the day of judgment. When that love is perfected, his love in you to others, you will have confidence in the day of judgment. The, the Greek word there for confidence is parousia, and it just means boldness. It's the ideal of confidence in the day, the future day of judgment. It's an incredible statement. In other words, when you proactively love one another, okay, and you demonstrate that love, and his love abides in you, John is saying that it will give you not fear, not intrepidation, if you will, not a lack of assurance in the day of judgment. When you follow this, it will give you confidence in the day of judgment. Now, this is not new to 1 John. Look back. Remember in chapter 2, this ideal of confidence. Look, look back there for a moment. He, he wants to give us confidence and assurance of that future day. And here's a great text in 1 John 2, 28. He says, and now little children abide in him. You say, well, why, John? Here's why. So that when he appears, second coming, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
In other words, when we abide in him and when he comes, we want to have confidence. Like I would just say, it is not the word of God's design that any of you right now, if I said if he returned, if that accident had turned another way for my daughter this morning, are you at peace right now? Are you at confidence in your heart? Another way to say it is, do you have assurance of your salvation? See, what John is saying is this. As you understand the love of God and it abides in you and you abide in him and as you love one another, far from fearing that day in the future, far from wondering if you can have the assurance of your salvation, no, the scripture would say you should be here facing that future day with confidence. Now, again, I don't want to lose the thought here. He's talking about a reason that you can love one another. This is a reason. As you abide in him, he abides in you. That day should not make you afraid. That you should never respond. I'm thinking of so many Catholic friends, and I I mean this uh, sincerely, who just have told me, well, you could never know if you have confidence. I mean, that's what they've told me, hundreds of them. Well, Scott, how could you know? You stand before God and he puts all your works, in essence, on a scale. And if you've done more good, then you weigh good and that's when you'll get in, but you'll never know that. Listen, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture, as you think of the second coming, should not instill fear in your heart. It should, if you're abiding in him, instill confidence so that when you think of his coming, you see that phrase in 228, you're not shrinking away, okay? Now, I mean, that's if you're a believer. But I, I was, I'm trying to think of my own heart and my own life because that was not me, and I've probably shared this before. I mean, before I became a Christian, oh, I didn't have confidence, Now, I suppose somebody could have a false confidence. John's been going through, if you say this, but live this. You could have a false confidence. But when I was a young teenager, I never had confidence. In fact, if you talk to me about my death, I had no confidence. In fact, I totally, this is me, totally shrunk away. I think I've told you before, I'd get to street corners and I couldn't, cross the corner with the lights because I was so afraid. I was walking. I was dribbling my basketball. Now, now John's just saying, listen, if you're a, you say, well, Scott, how come you didn't have confidence? I wasn't a believer. I, 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 I genuinely, I, I was in church. I was listening to John MacArthur every week and I was like a salmon just dead going downstream or maybe he's going upstream to get caught. I don't know. But I just, I had no life in me. And so when this thing says confidence here, man, I'm, I was 228. I was shrinking away. But John says here, listen, when you're abiding in Christ and when you're abiding in, in his love, and by this, when your love is being perfected, coming to its intended goal that you love one another, the result is then going to be that you're going to have confidence in the day of judgment. In fact, look over to chapter 3. That word parousia is used there in 321. You remember that? He's talking about our prayer life. In 321, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence 
before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments. And so here is this confidence. Now, as you look back, now go to chapter 4 again. By this, by the ideal of verse 16, is love, God's love, our love for Him, His love for us, our love for another is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Listen, this confidence is the relationship we already share with Christ, right? Who is our judge in the future day. And rather than fear, there ought to be boldness in the coming day. In fact, it'd be an interesting question to ask those who lose, who believe you can lose your salvation, what does John mean here? And I just say he means what he means. The word of God, the scripture is the scripture. It means this, when you're abiding in him, you can have confidence in that future day. Now, now look at the text again. He says for confidence, he mentions this ideal of the day of judgment. It's the only time he mentions it right here as well as in the gospel of John. And we must ask, what is that referring to? When he speaks of confidence here, He puts it for the day of judgment. What is the day of judgment? Well, certainly we know this. He's not referring to the final judgment that we stand before God. I mean, remember, John 5.24 assures us, Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes in him, it says, who sent me has eternal life, period. Whoever, say it again, hears my word. I mean, you could get saved right now. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Jesus said that he does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death into what? Life. We will not stand, if you're a believer, before the final judgment. But there's others who see this passage here in 4.17. It's an interesting thought as the Bema Seat Judgment. You know, when I say the Bema Seat Judgment, you know that that's not the judgment that we've passed that judgment into life, as I said. But the Bema Seat Judgment is the judgment for believers. 2 Corinthians 5.10 will all appear before, uh, you know, the, the, the judgment seat of God to give an account for our life. We know that there's an, a, there's an account to be given. And so they say here, we'll have confidence, uh, if you will, before the judgment seat of Christ. And of course, we're at that judgment. Make it sure we're clear there. Not for your salvation. That's already been given to you. But some would say for evaluation of their life's four rewards. Now, I personally don't think John here is addressing the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, to be honest with you, there will be many aspects of our life that will be tested, will there not? I mean, you and I will give an account before the Lord Jesus Christ. You will give an account for your stewardship. I will give an account before God for your souls. And I, I understand that, and it's a heavy weight, and we bear that weight. I just don't think John's talking about judgment seat here. I think one of the reasons I would say that is John is so black and white, isn't he? I don't think he's trying to get to a finer point in the Christian life. I think he's either talking about saved or unsaved. See, when I think John says here you'll have confidence in the day of judgment, he is speaking of the great white throne judgment where unbelievers will be judged, okay? 
Now, we're not destined for that judgment, right? Praise God. The judge before whom you stand is the one whose love you've already experienced. Listen, if you're in Christ, here in 1 John, you've been born again. Your sins have been forgiven. His Spirit indwells in you. You have confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you have crossed from death into life. And so for you, there is no judgment. Praise God. And so here's what he, he wants to give you assurance. You say, what way? Listen, he wants to just tell you that when you abide in him and he abides in you, and because of his nature is love and the gift of his son, you can love one another. And so, listen, we have passed from death to life. I'm thinking of Romans 5, 2, through him, through Christ, we have obtained our access, it says, by faith, into this grace by which we, it says, stand. We stand in the grace of God. We're not facing the great white throne judgment. In fact, we look forward to standing before God, listen, without fear. You say, well, how can you do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's in the text. Look, okay, here's how you can do that. Here's why you can have confidence. Look at verse 17. Because, amazing statement, as he is, it says, so also are we in this world. And and I think it's obvious, as he is, the thought would be, as Christ is, so also are we in the world. Now, let me just unpack that just for a moment, okay? As he is, and you have to understand, it is not as he was. He's not talking about the life of Christ on earth. It's in the present tense. As he is, in other words, as he is when John wrote, as Christ is now as I speak, okay? So he's not talking about the Lord Jesus while he lived on earth. He's talking about the present tense, and he's talking about his unchanging nature even now. And what this amazing statement means is, is if you can believe it, is that the Father treats believers the same way as he does his Son, Jesus Christ, right now. In other words, Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous. And we know from the Scripture that God clothes the believers with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Then he also puts into your account the, the Son's perfect love, And then he also puts into your account the son's perfect obedience. And so maybe you would say, as he lived, he is now, but he is now, and as he is, so you are in the world. Now, obviously, we've not attained to what Jesus Christ is, but look over at 1 John chapter 3. Do you remember this? In chapter 3, verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him. I love that phrase, as he is. In other words, he treats you, does the father the same way that he treats his son. And as the way he treats his son is as you are in this world, you are protected by the power of God for a faith to be revealed. 
And so look at the text now. As a result of this perfect love, does this make sense now in verse 18? It says in verse 18, there is no fear in love. It says there, but perfect love cast out fear. What John is saying there is that the love of God brings confidence and it banishes all fear of judgment when you're abiding in Christ. In other words, the text says that fear and love cannot coexist. Perfect love, final love, mature love drives out all fear. So that's an interesting case when you think about people who build the doctrine that no one can really know if they're saved. Actually, it's the exact opposite of the truth. Perfect love casts out all fear. And so the understanding of God's love in our life casts out the fear of condemnation of that final judgment. In fact, Here's the text. Look over at Romans just for a second. Would you look there? Certainly you've seen these texts with your eyes. Here's why we have confidence, and here's why perfect love casts out fear. And if you're a believer and you're standing in Christ and abiding in Christ, look at Romans 5.9. Since therefore, Romans 5.9, we have now been justified, past tense, by his blood much more Shall we be saved by him from the what? The wrath of God. Now, it's interesting there. You're justified by his blood. Looking back to that work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and certainly you've expressed faith in him when you heard that word, and when you were declared righteous, you were in fact justified by his blood. But look how he notes that in Romans 5, 9. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Isn't that interesting? We're going to be saved, but to be saved is put in the future tense. And I think we obviously get that. Folks, this is not the end of the story right here, is it? We are not only saved in the past tense, we are being saved in the present tense through sanctification. And one day we will be what? Glorified. But if you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about your future you will be marvelously, wondrously transformed, given a new body. And so you're going to be saved from the wrath of God. And so you can have confidence. Look over to the right a little bit in 1 Thessalonians. These are just precious scriptures that give us this confidence. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I love that whole chapter describing the marks of this healthy church who imitated Christ, who loved Christ. But then this thought, here's the mark of a healthy church in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that they were waiting, or to wait, and the ideal is to anxiously wait, for his Son from heaven, obviously the second coming, whom he, God, raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the what? from the wrath to come. Listen, if you're in Christ, He will deliver you from that wrath to come because you are abiding in Him. 
So John just says to us, listen, we can have confidence that his love is being perfected in us. And he says, as a result of that, there is no uh, you know, fear, if you will. Perfect love cast out fear. Look over at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in verse 9. Here's the confidence that you can have. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, I've already obtained it. Yes, you have attained it, if you will, that you are justified. You are also in the process of being sanctified, as I mentioned, and one day you will be glorified. But this is not the last stop, is it? We await that day where we'll get a new body and we'll be fully like the Lord Jesus Christ. So in no way are we destined for the wrath of God. So here's the teaching as you come back to to 1 John. Whenever fear arises, perfect love casts out fear. Now, I want to be clear here. It is not saying that fear is banished forever from our experience, nor that believers' love has always been perfect so that it entirely banishes fear, but that every believer, as his love increases, Fear diminishes. Fear is cast away. And I can only tell you, and maybe this isn't fair because it's a personal account, that the reason I feared and couldn't cross the street is I, I wasn't saved. Period. Now you say, well, Scott, I, I'm saved, but I, I do struggle with this. I understand that. But I would tell you this, that when I got down on my knees and when I confessed Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior at 14, I never had that fear anymore. Listen, God hasn't designed you to live in fear the rest of your life. Matt, I see you back there. I don't know what was going with Matt and Ryan as they're talking and they thought Matt's um, artery maybe had broken or had been crushed and he he would die. But you know, you get in that situation and there's Matt with his brother Ryan. And you're, you might be looking at two, where's Dr. Trevino? Is that two minutes to die? I don't know. Be quick. Is less or no? A little higher, just a little bit. And what do you talk about? But listen, when, if you get in that situation, or any of us, listen, you should have confidence. And, and perfect love is going to work towards this. And when you understand the love of God, it will banish. It will, the ideal is it will throw aside, if you will, fear. In fact, perfect love cast out fear, and it's in the present tense. The ideal would be, this is what John is saying, that whenever fear seeks to grip your heart, perfect love acts to cast out fear and throw it aside. And so when we abide in God's love, and he abides in us, and when that love, beloved, finds expression in acts of love to one another, such love cast out fear of final judgment at the great white throne because we know Jesus Christ in a different way. You will not meet him as your judge in condemnation. You will meet him as your wonderful savior in great glorification as he transforms us. In fact, no wonder John says this in verse 18. Look at the text, okay? He says there, there is no fear in love. Perfect love cast out fear. He says this, for fear has to do with what? 
punishment, read it slowly, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. John says here, love of God and others cast out fear because fear involves, here's his word, punishment. You say, well, Scott, maybe he's talking about punishing me as a believer. And you say, why would you say that? Because I know that's how some of you think. You, you just, you're sitting there and you're thinking, ah, yeah, but Scott, you struggled, but I fear and I am a believer and I'm afraid all the time. Do, do you remember that movie? Long time ago. Ha, scared the living daylights out of me. The Thief Comes, or what, what was the name of it? The Thief, oh man, when I saw that thing, ah, the wrath of God. I, you know, I was just under my sheets in my bed, you know. And uh, I was so, but I know some of you, you, you might be thinking here, well, Scott, um, Nick, did you like that one? <laughs> I just, I was so afraid, and I thought he doesn't want you to be afraid because fear, look at it, has to do, verse 18, or yeah, 18, with punishment. Interesting. The only other time in all of the New Testament, I think it's Matthew 25, 46, where punishment is listed, John here is speaking about eternal punishment, okay? And you're going to beat yourself up, some of you. You, you, you. Even as a believer, you're going to beat yourself up, and I'm, I'm going to stand before Listen, look at the text again. It says there in 18 that fear has to do with punish, punishment, and he's addressing again eternal punishment. Now, let me be clear. This is the hard thing when you're a teacher, There is a proper fear of God in other passages. You and I both know that, all over Proverbs. But here, those who fear his judgment have not experienced his love. John's black and white here. They are in danger of judgment. But listen, if you're a believer, you don't have to live with foreboding fear. And I'm thinking of Paul in Romans, you know it that you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Paul says there, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, what? Abba, Father, and the spirit himself bears with our spirit that we are children of God. You do not have to fear punishment. Here, eternal punishment. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, if you've come to him by faith, if you've looked away from everything else and you've embraced him as your savior, you don't have to fear. In fact, there shouldn't even necessarily be fear in your heart other than crying out by the spirit of God, Abba, Father. You know the passage. You could probably say it with me. Who shall separate us from the what? The love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul says, no. In all these things, we are more than what? Conquerors through him who what? Loved us. Paul said, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, death, depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, nothing can separate you. So here's the confidence that John is giving us. So the wonderful love of God has reached our hearts, touched our hearts, and I haven't really even got to the point, okay? That it's done, watch this, so that you can love others. That's the whole point of the context, if you will. We do not fear judgment, we have confidence. And to bolster that, look at the text in 419. He says there, we love, stop there just for a second. That's really his point. We love. We love one another. And we love, and you get it in verse 19, because he first loved us. It was God who sovereignly drew us to himself. And and we'll get to that in men's equippers. So excited. We're getting to the doctrine of election, not this week, but the next But we know that God loved us and he sovereignly drew us. And God's love in our salvation, we understand this, is always primary. And our response is always what? A response to his love. In fact, look back at 1 John 4.10. It says there, in this is love. It doesn't begin with us. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the thought. In other words, God loved us. God took the initiative to love you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I think we're well aware of Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us in that we were, while yet sinners, Christ, what did he do? He died for us. That's the whole point here. Ephesians 1.4 says that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then it says at the end of 1.4, in love he, what? He predestined us. I think we grasp that, that he, before the world began, loved us. Listen, he loved you before you existed. Christ died as the substitute in your place. He paid for all your sins. He purchased your sins, if you will, on the cross through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so John says to us, we love because he first, what? Loved us. Now watch this. God's love then, this is the most important statement, should motivate you to love one another. That's really what he's preaching here. His love should motivate you to love one another. Let me just ask you this question. How can you not respond to God's love by showing his love to one another in the body of Christ? Listen, he did all that for you. Can you believe it? God Almighty gave His only begotten Son before the foundation of the world to be a Savior for your sin. It's incredible. It's even unthinkable. You say, well, what does that mean? It means this, and here's His point, okay? You are free then to love others. You are free then, and this might hurt, to love your enemies. You say, well, how can I do that? Here's how you can do that. He loved you when? 
first, okay? He loved you when you were a sinner. And, and because he loved you when you were a sinner, you are therefore now enabled and empowered and supernaturally released to love others even, 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 even when it is humanly impossible and even irreprehensible. You have to love others. And that's John's point. I don't have to tell you. You are because of his nature, because of his gift, because of the abiding, dwelling spirit of Christ, because of the confidence you can love other people. I mean, this is the logic. Look down at 410 again in one second. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And here's what follows. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to what? Love one another. You say, how then can I respond to love by loving others? And here's John's final distinctive in answering why we are to love one another. On your notes there, the command from God. The command from God. Listen, when you understand the nature of God's love, when you understand the nature of God's gift of love in His Son, when you have that indwelling Spirit abiding in you, when you have confidence before Him in the day of judgment, then you will have both the ability and the desire to show love to others. Listen, Grace Church of the Valley, that is why, that is why, anybody who doesn't love the body of Christ... How can they love the Lord? If you love God and his love has marked you, it will transform you to love people. And I and I I think primarily he's certainly talking about the body of Christ. Generally, in the other scriptures, he's talking about loving others. In fact, isn't this his thought now in 420? Look at it. If anyone says, remember, talk is cheap. If they say, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? Liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, who, who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Listen, I don't have to go into all the other places. It's a lie to claim to know God and be in fellowship with God and walk in disobedience. Chapter 1-6. It's a lie to claim to be in fellowship with the Father all the while you deny the Son, chapter 2, 23. And here, it is a lie to claim to love God all the while hating another. And, you know, so I just got to ask you, I hope that's not your heart anywhere. Not only with people in this church, your family, okay? People who have wronged you. People who have sinned against you. People who have taken your money. People who have taken your inheritance. People who cut you out of a job. Listen, you can't hate. The absence of love for one another reveals us to be a liar. Look back just at a few texts in 1 John 2, 9. In 1 John 2, 9, whoever says he's in the light, I'm in the light. They say they're in the light, but they hate their brother is still in the what? In the darkness. Look over at chapter 2, same chapter, verse 11. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Go over to chapter 3 and verse 10. He's this clear. 
By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. How, John? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his, what? Well, you can't be a Christian and not love one another. You say, well, listen, if you're in Christ and he abides in you, you are going to love one another. You ought to look for ways to love one another. Look at chapter 3 and verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a what? Murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John says it's absurd to not love one another. So look what he does in finishing the chapter. He gives us a positive exhortation. He counters the absurdity. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his what brothers. So God's command to love one another is an extension of his love for us. And in demonstrating our love to others, we come to know him and reveal him more perfectly and our love is being perfected. And so we've got to put it into practice. You say, well, what does that love look like here? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me just, a few things, okay? Number one, if you love, and I'm just trying to really scissor this, and I have no idea if this is you in here, but I'm going to be this specific. If you love people, you will love Love unconditionally, number one, forgives. You'll forgive. You'll forgive people. You'll forgive your family. You'll forgive a boss. You'll, un, and I said it right, unconditionally forgive. Whether you have reconciliation or not, you are going to forgive from the heart. Peter said to the Lord, Lord, how often Will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as what? Seven times? And Jesus said to him, I did not say to you seven times, but what? Seventy-seven times. And you don't have to add them up. Like one, two, three, four, five, six. It just means every time, I take it like this when I'm counseling people, every time you're offended by what someone's done, you just keep forgiving them. You forgive them. You, you let it go. You release it. You do not harbor bitterness towards another. You don't harbor a grudge towards one another. Listen, such indifference or hatred mocks our profession and his sacrifice for sinners such as I. In fact, would you just glance at this? I looked at it yesterday. Matthew chapter 5. Would you just go back there one minute? It was just stunning to me. Matthew 5. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Sermon on the Mount. Remember, remember this passage there? And, this, and I have no idea if I'm speaking to you, but I'm going to say it, okay? Because I meet people sometimes who live in grudge-like fashion, bitterness, and it just riddles them. I'm thinking of this in 521. You have heard that it was said to those of the old, you shall not murder, you know, just physically. Take it literally. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or your sister, my interpretation, has something against you, leave your gift before the altar. Go. First be reconciled to your brother or your sister. It's neutral, obviously. 
and then come out and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge hand you to the guard and you be put in prison. And it's hard to say, what does that mean, be put in prison? I think people, I'm wondering if it's even metaphorically speaking that people who do not forgive have to live with a hardened heart towards other people and you suffer the loss. The last verse, Jesus said, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So listen, you've got to unconditionally love. I just say this secondly, you've got to bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. Go, go back just to First John. I, maybe I'm just thinking this, to love one another. Verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love, what? Abide in him. Listen, beloved, I could just say it this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor, what? As yourself. It says on these two commands depend all the law and all the what? Prophets. Listen. If, if, if we, if just, just take it, and, and I don't mean to be closing it in here, because I just wonder how we love those on the outside. What is our passion for adoption? What is our passion for orphans? What is our passion for the people that we set? Listen, if you love God, you'll have a love for the people you walk with and minister to. That's in there. But can you imagine if we loved one another in this place? And the love of God would just begin to grow and spread. And they would say, man, those people love each other. That's my prayer for our church. I mean, I see that put into place in so many contexts, in so many ways. You excel still more. But listen, you could boil the whole Christian life down to this. Love God vertically and love your neighbor horizontally. And if you love them vertically and love people this way, then you'll fulfill all the law and all the prophets. Listen, you will cherish your neighbors with the same love that you bear towards yourself. And you're dealing with one another. You will never show selfishness to them. You will never show irritability to them. You will never show indifference to them. With your neighbor, you will take a genuine interest in their welfare. You will seek to promote their interest. You will seek to promote their honor. You will seek to promote their well-being. You will never regard them with a feeling of prideful superiority, nor do you ever talk about their failings. You will never resent any wrongdoings that they do, but instead you will always be ready to forgive 70 times 7. You, that would be right. That, that's a, a, an unlimited number. Man, I, I tell you, I've seen Christian workers. Wow. You think I've seen bitterness with people in counseling? Look no further than missionaries at times who just can't get along with people on the field. Scary. Scary sometimes. And without any, listen, you'll be ready to forgive. You'll always treat your neighbor as you would have them treat you. And then you'll do this. And, and I, I'm thinking, maybe the Spirit of God is laying somebody on your heart. You, and you don't have closure with them. Get up. Don't come to the altar. Go make it right. Because here's what Paul says. Love is always patient. It's always what? Kind. It's never envious. It's never boastful. 
It's never proud or rude or self-seeking. You are not, 1 Corinthians 13, easily angered. You keep no record of wrong, even in your mind, of wrongdoings done to you. That's the gospel. So listen, here's five definitive reasons why we're going to love one another. It's God's nature. It's God's gift of his son, his indwelling spirit, our confidence of perfected love, and the command that comes to us from God. But listen, let's put these things into practice. Amen. Can you imagine what can happen to our church? Can you imagine what the Lord might do in this place? Listen, there was a birthday party yesterday for a little boy in our church. And, um, you know, I went, you know, for his birthday because my hope and prayer is I want to see that young boy become a man. And I want to see that young boy become a leader in our church. And he's one now. And I want us to fight with every, every means possible in the right way that we can lay the right tracks down relationally so that boy has a place to be here, right? That boy would become a man and that boy maybe would become a leader among us. But I'll tell you, what's going to make the difference going forward isn't going to be the building. I'll downplay it. What's going to make the difference for us going forward is our mutual love for one another. Amen? And as we walk in humility with one another, and when the onlooking world sees the love, they're going to say, man, what's going on in there? And listen, I'm excited about the building, but we're not hanging everything on it, are we? We want to do that for the glory of God, do we not? But listen, you could have a beautiful building and empty hearts, can't you? You could have a beautiful building and and an unforgiving spirit and it will kill us. And so listen, if you have any relationships and I have nobody in my mind that you need to fix, then go talk to them today. Love them today. Take the first step. Go. Get off the altar and go. Make it right because I so want us to love one another. Don't you want us to live this commandment out? And I want to see it for generations to come. Amen? Amen.